0: our friend, our prophet, uh, Jeremiah. This is God's word. Now, Sheph-Atiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. When ebed the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, ebed went from the king's house and said to the king, my lord, the king, these men have done evil, and all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebedmelech the Ethiopian, take thirty men with you from there and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebedmelech took the men with him and went to the house of the king. "...to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from their old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then ebed the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, "...put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes." And Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard." We stop there on a reading of God's eternal word. Today, here in chapter 38, we find another confrontation between the king and the prophet, or more accurately, a confrontation between the king and the scroll, or more accurately, a confrontation between the king and God. Today's confrontation is intense. It's dramatic. It's personal. How did the purpose of God for the city of Jerusalem square with the public's perceived assumptions about their well-being. In other words, what is a godly reaction to the attack from Babylon? Should they defend the city or surrender to Babylon? It's surprising to find that a godly reaction, per God, through his prophet, is to surrender to evil Babylon. This was God's purpose, because God is holy, and the sin of the people must be punished. This message clearly points us ahead to the cross, where our sins had to be punished by this holy God, even when our sins were upon his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is already here teaching that in a sinful world, life must come through death and resurrection. A pit is followed by rescue, an exile followed by a homecoming. Submission to the clear will of God collided with that patriotic war effort to save the city of Jerusalem from the forthcoming attack by an evil empire of Babylon. So the unpopular and counterintuitive lesson for the crowds was to accept the obedience of God in the days of Jeremiah meant surrender to the Babylonian army, which was as counterintuitive for them as it was years later for the Apostle Peter, who in this same area of Jerusalem thought that zeal for God meant that he should pick up a sword and fight militarily to protect Christ from arrest, having even cut off the ear of a gentleman, rather than surrender to Jesus' cruel crucifixion. Counterintuitive. Really? I should not pick up a sword here? Obedience to God in the days of Jeremiah, meant surrender to Babylon, surrender to becoming prisoners of war, surrender to being carried away into exile. That is the pathway of life, the pathway to life. Obedience to God equaled surrender to death by crucifixion for Christ as the pathway to life for us. So we see the lesson, we see where this is going, And in our study, we discover that this king, though he was the king of God's people, he was God's king, was behaving in a way that is fragile and desperate, concerned only for the survival of the city intact, missing out on the lesson that we just reviewed, that obedience to God would mean submission to the enemy army. In contrast, our hero, if you want to put it that way, our hero, Jeremiah, was courageous and strong on this Occasion. As the messenger of God, our prophet carried a word from God that went against both the policy of the king and public opinion. The conflict arose when being the voice box of God's message ended up presenting personal danger to our prophet, Jeremiah, and he remained fearlessly vocal about the certain destruction of this city and the request of God that they submit to Babylon and surrender. Jeremiah remained resolutely concerned only for the will of God to be heard. Remember our lesson on Shema and hearing and listening, following, heeding God's word. Jeremiah was concerned for the will of God to be heard. And it sounded to them like he's a traitor. Why would you be telling everybody our city's going down? Babylon's going to crush us. You're a soldier and you hear the mighty prophet Jeremiah say that. Do you feel like fighting? So in this scene, in our series of walking through topics and the life of Jeremiah as we jump around, in this particular moment, in this scene, this cowardly king allowed a supposedly patriotic crowd with murderous intent to attack our brave preacher. And today's study of actions taken against Jeremiah in Jerusalem remind us, don't they, of later actions taken in Jerusalem against Jesus Christ. The similarities are there in the life of Jeremiah and the life of Jesus. When ancient Jeremiah is placed into a pit in order to die, it reminds us of how years later in the same city, a murderous crowd took Jesus and after having put him to death on a cross, buried him in a pit as already dead. And just as Jeremiah was brought back out of his pit in a symbolic resurrection, we are pointed to Jesus who came back out of the grave in an actual resurrection. So it all points forward to Jesus and his cross. It brings us to our main point. After Christ was hoisted out of the pit of death, he provided us with true courage. We look at our first point that false courage was to stay in Jerusalem out of a false nationalism, false patriotism. But true courage was to surrender to God's discipline through the enemy army. So we've already seen this the crowd of people in verse 1. and verse 2, the same three causes of death are mentioned now. They've been frequent in the book of Jeremiah. Remember hearing these? You'll die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Think about how that progresses. The sword comes. And after the sword has attacked the city, then you have famine because it breaks off the supply line since there's nothing to eat. And when there's nothing to eat for a while, things start to descend down where you have rodents and diseases that take over and you have what you could categorize as pestilence, which is all sorts of negative, nasty things. You'll surely die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. This is how it's going down for the city. However... Any person who would surrender to the Babylonians would escape with his own life, we're told in verse 3. Jeremiah stated unequivocally in verse 3 that the city would be handed over to the army of Babylon. And in verse 4, the officials insist that because he's saying these crazy things, Jeremiah must be put to death. He's discouraging and demoralizing the soldiers whose job it is to defend our city. We're obviously coming under attack. And from the perspective of government officials whose patriotism is unquestioned, Jeremiah is not seeking the good of the soldiers, he's seeking their ruin and the ruin of the city. You see how the false versus true courage is being put in front of us? That was our first point. Then we move to our second point, that false courage takes now an obstinate stand and damages true patriots who have true courage. Verse 5, King Zedekiah shows his uh, weak character in attempting to remove himself from any responsibility for harm that they wanted to do to Jeremiah. Uh, doesn't it remind us of Pontius Pilate, whom we, we just mentioned in our reading of the Nicene Creed? Both, both Zedekiah here, the king in verse 5, and Pontius Pilate, as we read in the Gospels, were government officials with authority, both faced crowds who wanted to harm a preacher of God. Both lacked the fortitude to stand up to the enemies of God's preacher. Both made public statements trying to absolve themselves of responsibility. Now listen to uh, Pontius Pilate interact with the crowds, Matthew 27:22. The crowd all said, "Let him be crucified," speaking now of Jesus. And Pilate said, "Why? What evil has he done but they shouted all the more let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying I am innocent of this man's blood see to it yourselves. Matthew 27:22 to 24. That's exactly what we have here in verse 5. I'll give you another illustration. Again, in the book of Acts, as Luke summarized the events of the trial and execution of Jesus, it sounded like what's happening here with Jeremiah, and it's supposed to sound like that, which is why we're covering these briefly, except that it was a pit instead of a cross, and that Jeremiah ended up rescued where Jesus ended up dead and buried. But listen to Acts 13:27 Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death they asked Pilate to have him executed And when they had carried out all that was written of him they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb Acts 13, 27 to 29. Another summary of what we know well. The gospel account of Jesus. And that comes to our minds as we read verse 5. And now back to our study in Jeremiah 38 and advancing to verse 6. The crowds took Jeremiah and threw him in the pit. These pits were used to collect and store water. Right now, we're told there's no water in the cistern, maybe because it's wartime and it had been used but not refilled. The cisterns were shaped like a pear, a wide base and a narrow entry at the top, kind of like a manhole cover, so that they could cover it and keep the water from being compromised. The officials, if they were to put him down into that pit, could deny that they had blood on their hands, could deny that they actually killed Jeremiah because they left and last they saw him, he was alive. They could say that in court, see? That's why they let him down with ropes. And that's why we're told that. Instead of throwing him in there and he could break his neck and then they did kill him, they let him down ever so carefully with ropes so he was alive. And they leave with him alive. And we know exactly what's happening as they leave because we're told in verse 6. Let me turn my page and read it again. Verse 6. And at the end of verse 6 And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the water. Mud. The cistern had mud at the bottom. And just think this through. They let Jeremiah down there using ropes. He sank in the mud. Now imagine time passes for you. You're in the pit the rest of the afternoon, overnight, the next day, the next night. Are you able to lay down? Are you able to get rest? Is there anything to drink? Is there anything to eat? And the mud is a polite word for it. Just imagine what the condition was for an unused pit in a time of war. Jeremiah was in a stinky, oozy mess that would not let him rest. And he faced the horror of a very slow death of dehydration, starvation, and even eventual drowning whenever he did fall over into brackish mud. That is the scene that God wants us to see that Jeremiah has been placed into. Perhaps Jeremiah could echo David's prayer in Psalm 69, 14. Deliver me from sinking in the mire, the mud. No reason is given for putting Jeremiah into the cistern to die rather than killing him. We remember back in Genesis 37, 22 to 24, what the brothers of Joseph did to him. Doesn't it put you in the mind of that as well? And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben had the idea of going back later to rescue him. Don't kill him, throw him in the pit. And on his own, he's thinking this way. So verse 23 of Genesis 37 continues, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Jeremiah thirty-seven twenty-two to 24. For the brothers, they wanted to get rid of Joseph and be able to say, no, father, we did not kill him. See, it's the same scene. For the officials in Jeremiah's case, they wanted to get rid of him, but they probably had some superstitious fear about killing a prophet. Or, if they were versed in Scripture and considering certain verses, they could have a fear of shedding innocent blood. Because shedding innocent blood was considered at that time, and I think it's a good notion for them to get it from Scripture, one of the worst sins that could be committed, and the reason that God gave them cities of refuge, places where people could flee, regardless of how the court case was currently being handled, was as God said in Deuteronomy nineteen ten, lest innocent blood be shed in your land, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Deuteronomy nineteen ten. The officials here in Jeremiah's case convinced themselves that if they placed him in a pit carefully with ropes letting him down, but didn't actually kill him, that somehow they were innocent of Jeremiah's death, which of course they had consigned him to. They were claiming to be patriots of Jerusalem and taking these actions on behalf of Jerusalem, protecting it against the big, bad Babylonian army, protecting the morale of their soldiers from being discouraged by the message of Jeremiah. But in actuality, they were cowards who were damaging the true patriot of Jerusalem, the one who would speak to them the truth on God's behalf. And when they left the godly man, Jeremiah, to die, sinking in the mud in the bottom of a pit, their character became abundantly clear to all of us. Will anyone rescue the man of God? Will anyone rescue the true patriot now sinking in the mud sure to die if no action is taken? That's where we're left at the end of verse 6. It's absolutely fascinating what happens next. We turn then to verse 7 in our third point that true courage takes actions in solidarity or in unity with true patriots. Jeremiah's rescue came from, let me understate this, an unexpected source. Not a single Israelite. We have to go outside the nation to find someone who would take action now when Jeremiah is in grave danger. A man is introduced now in verse 7 with no mention of prior relationship with Jeremiah or why he sympathized with this prophet. He's only identified as an Ethiopian, which means he's from Africa the African country we know of as Ethiopia, which in those days was called Cush. He was a Cushite. Maybe your Bible, depending on your translation, says it that way. The point is that none of Jeremiah's own people cared enough for the truth-teller, the prophet, the man of God, who for decades had been serving them God's truth. None of them cared enough to him about him to rescue him, so that the effort to rescue Jeremiah was left to a foreigner, In fact, the repetition of the mention throughout this passage, so often that he is from Ethiopia, he's an Ethiopian, we keep getting hammered with that, is the point. It's meant to keep in front of us the fact that it was not an Israelite, but rather a foreigner, a person of a different race and color who came to rescue Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech is what we call him, but it's not even a name. It's a title. Like we might say, Sergeant of Arms, Oh yeah, but what's his name? Sergeant of Arms is a title, it's a position, it's a person who serves the court. This is servant of the king. Abed means servant, Melech means king. Servant of the king. <laughs> it's a title. Though he's an official of King Zedekiah, his, what we call him or his title tells us he's actually the servant of another king. He's a servant of the Lord God, the king, isn't he? Why did Ebed, we'll call him Ebed, help Jeremiah? The passage does not seem to give his motivation, but we remember our theme of listening that we've seen for chapters now, which has been a theme here Shema, listening. Guess what the very first word of verse 7 is? The very first word in Hebrew. It's Shema, it's hearing. Isn't that a clue to us that he hears? Ebed hears. Ebed listens to God. Ebed is somebody who's different from the problems we've been seeing so far in chapter after chapter. That he will hear. He responds to what God says. He will heed God's call. The word is immediately followed by this title. So Shema ebed Melech. There you have your Hebrew lesson. Hear the servant of the king. He hears. Nobody else hears. But Jeremiah is in... A pit, literally. He's in deep trouble, literally. And Abed Melech hears. He, he responds. He heeds what's needed in that moment. We are encouraged to understand that Ebed had an ear to hear. Ebed's motivation seems to be that he's sympathetic toward the message of Jeremiah. And that is why he helped Jeremiah. But we do have another passage that does say what our passage does not say. So if you keep your finger there and go over to chapter 39, just the next chapter, verses 15 to 18, that we'll cover more in the future Lord willing. Basically, God said that Ebed would survive the coming destruction because quote, I'm not reading Jeremiah 39:18, quote, because you have put your trust in me. That's God saying that to Ebed Melik. You get your life. You get to live. You will survive the attack of Babylon and the coming exile because you put your trust in me. We are being told in chapter 39, Ebed, our friend, was a true believer. Ebed, our friend, was a true worshiper. And so Ebed recognized that Jeremiah speaks the true words of God and Ebed didn't want that message to end that day. He wanted to rescue Jeremiah so that more of God's words could be heard. He recognized Jeremiah as the true patriot for the nation of God's people, and so Ebed took action to show support and solidarity with Jeremiah, and it took courage. Look what they did to Jeremiah. Don't you think they'd do that to a foreigner? He took courageous actions to act on his behalf. So now back to our study of chapter 38 and we're in verse 7. As soon as Ebed heard that Jeremiah is in a cistern, he immediately sprang into action. And what's his action? Verse 8, to find the king in order to ask the king to authorize a rescue team. Also in verse 7, we're told the king, where he was, sitting in the Benjamin Gate. Now I remind you again, the ancient city gate was like our modern city center, city courthouse and everything. So it's ironic that this king was dispensing justice one place of the city, while permitting a terrible act of injustice to take place in another part of his same city. But the king held the power. Though the king denied it in verse 5, he did hold the power to change the outcome for Jeremiah, and this African man, Ebed, knew differently. Ebed was risking his own life to confront this king about the wicked actions being carried out by the men, the officials in this king's Kingdom, actions against Jeremiah. Since the gate was a place of legal proceedings, it seems that Ebed came there to make a legal case to the king for the release of Jeremiah. On what grounds, sir? Verse 9, on the grounds that unless something's done, the harsh imprisonment would result in Jeremiah dying, and that would be an unjust death sentence. Basically, to use Ebed's words from verse 9, these men have done evil. The accusation is against the king. For if the king knows now, and the food is not sent, or he's not pulled out of that pit, and if he dies of hunger and starvation, then the king would be directly responsible. Ebed, in just a few words, cuts through all the red tape and gets down to what's really happening. Verse 10 the king responded favorably Go ahead, rescue Jeremiah. And also, the king perceived it necessary to order 30 men. To enforce his new decision and his new will. This means that the wicked men who had imprisoned Jeremiah were possibly, probably, extremely powerful in this city. And they could stop Ebed from accomplishing this task. So thankfully there was not a further military altercation. But instead the 30 men and Ebed were able to extricate the prophet from the pit without Further incident. Verse 11, we're told the kindness of our stranger. Not only is he courageous, not only is he willing to risk himself, but he would not only go to the pit, but on his way, he would stop at the storehouse and find old clothes and rags to use as a buffer between the ropes and Jeremiah's armpit. Tells us a couple things. Number one, it's probably going to take a lot of force to pull him up out of that mud. Number two, this is a very thoughtful and kind man who doesn't just say, grin and bear at Jeremiah, but before he arrives, gets the clothing to serve as a buffer. We see his kindness multiple fold, not only rescuing, but also doing it with compassion. And in verse 12, the foreigner did not only show the kindness of rescue, but prevented further suffering and further injury for this precious, precious man, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah received the instructions, put the Rags under your arms, between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah responded, yes. He received the benefit of the kindness of the buffer and the kindness of the ropes themselves. And in verse 13, the strength of the men to lift him up. He received it all. Jeremiah was rescued. And consider how appropriate would have been the words for our hero Jeremiah if he had sung Psalm 31 to 3 on this occasion. I will extol you, O Lord. For you have drawn me up, and if not, let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, and you have restored restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit, Psalm 31 through 3. We don't know that he's saying that, but how appropriate would those words be? Nothing is said about his enemy's reaction to the rescue of Jeremiah. However, one last thing we're told in our passage in verse 13 is that Jeremiah was not free to go. Jeremiah is remaining now in the court of the guard. Free from danger, rescued his life, but not free to go. Still detained by the king in the court of the guard. It all points to Christ, as we've said at the start. Ebed means servant. Christ is the servant. Melech means king, anointed Christ means king, the anointed one. He's our suffering servant. Ebed rescued with ropes and compassion of rags under the cushion for ropes. Christ rescued by taking our place in our pit, dying there for us, and then rising again, and himself being released from the pit. He succumbed to death as our substitute, going much farther than our ebed in order to set us free. From sin, from death, and from ourselves, what have we seen today? After Christ hoisted out, of, after Christ was hoisted out of the pit, He provided us with a true courage. So I have four application points. Briefly, number one: People from all nations are brothers and sisters to us by faith in Christ. This Ebed is a beloved brother to us. He worked for God. He believed in God. He's a brother to Jeremiah. He's from Ethiopia. Is it any coincidence that in Acts chapter 8, as Philip is doing his work as a deacon and as an evangelist, that the person that he encounters by the direction of the Holy Spirit is an Ethiopian man who's reading the book of Isaiah, not quite sure what it means. And Philip comes and explains to him what it means. The Ethiopian is converted. The Ethiopian is filled by the Spirit. The Ethiopian is baptized. And Philip literally disappears. He just moves on to his next assignment, that God has brought him through, and then God caused Luke to write that down for us to say, what we see in Jeremiah 38, we see in Acts 8, that our God is the God of all nations, and that he has people, his own people, in all nations, and that he calls people to himself from every nation, tribe, language, and people. It's a biblical concept of mission, not only in the New Testament, Not only recently, when it became popular to welcome all people, but from Old Testament times, God has been welcoming people from all nations. So people from all nations are our brothers and sisters. Number two, Christ gives us courage to be rejected. Should I say canceled? The pit could be the whale, the belly of a fish, such as the prophet Jonah who wrote in Jonah 2.6 when Jonah prayed, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He called the whale a pit. The pit could be the cistern, such as our story today in Jeremiah. Or the pit could be the tomb after the cross for our Lord Jesus. Today, we are called in a long line of those who went to the pit. Your pit could be being accused. Your pit could be being misunderstood by co-workers, friends, the public. Your pit could be being mocked, being rejected. Your pit could be the place of our community of cultural rejection known as canceled. That could be your future. That could be your calling from God. Worse, your pit could be to be arrested, to be mistreated, to suffer miscarriages of justice in the name of Christ. But I want you to remember this from Jeremiah in the pit. It points us to Christ, and Christ says he gives us courage to be rejected for God. Bear up brothers and sisters, Christ gives us what we need for that. Our third application is understand what true courage is. True patriotism, true patriotism is standing with God. True patriotism is having an ear to hear, Shema, God, to understand him, to listen to him, to heed him, to live your life according to what God defines as true. We cannot let our fellow citizens redefine the things that God has already defined. We know what a man is, what a woman is. We know what marriage is. We know when life begins. We know what's worth protecting. We know all sorts of things that are trying to redefine. We cannot allow people to take the good cause of equality for the races and use that same moral ground to insist that we all embrace wicked sexual ethics. It doesn't follow. It's not logical. We understand that true courage is staying with God's ethic as God defines it. Being kind to all persons, no matter how confused they are. We oppose all bad morals, no matter how much pressure is being exerted upon us to do otherwise. Because we have an ear to hear our Lord God in his word. I have one more. So what have we seen? Number one was people from all nations are our brothers and sisters by faith in Christ. Number two, Christ gives us courage to be rejected or canceled. Number three, understand what true courage is and laugh. Number four, God has helpers for us. You could be in a pit, but you're never alone. The Lord God is not only the Lord of all nations. He's the Lord of all the heavens and the earth, and he's got people, literally has people. He has helpers. The widow of Zarephath saved the prophet Elijah's life. Ebed from Ethiopia saved Jeremiah's life. Joseph had a cupbearer who was his friend. King David had Jonathan who ironically was the son of his arch enemy. Paul had friends in Ephesus in Acts 19 and Acts 23. Last week, we studied how in church history, Pastor Tyndale had helpers in various cities as he traveled about in God's providence. God has an army of helpers. You're one of them, but you're also the recipient of his army. Christ has hoisted you out of the pit of sin and death. He'll hoist you out of this world. And whatever it is that you need in the meantime... Our God has an army of helpers for us. Watch for God's helpers. He taught us this, that in a sinful world, life comes through death and resurrection. A pit is followed by rescue. An exile is followed by a homecoming. So our travels through this world, call them a pit, call them exile, call it suffering. Our travels through this world are followed by us going home soon will be hoisted out of this pit.